Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Wurst and I'm back. I'm your host today and I'm joined by my colleagues Samuel Luckhurst and Tyrell Marshall. We're recording on a Monday afternoon after a decent game of football on the Sunday night. Samuel, we've just been talking about it. How are you and did you enjoy the World Cup final? I, I'm very well, thank you. And it, it was it was absorbing. It was remarkable. It was extraordinary. Two, not a great deal of charm about both sides for obvious reasons. Messi winning it is always going to overshadow the, the negatives, but uh, I, I can't be happy for Emiliano Martinez winning it. I find him quite a deplorable character and, and he wasn't the only one in that Argentina team. There, there is something extremely unedifying about them, but I, I, since the quarterfinal, it seemed like they were they were fated to win it and they did. There's had a lot of emotion around that, of course, with, with Maradona passing away a couple of years ago and since uh, he's he's gone to the heavens, uh, Argentina have, have won the Copa America final. They've won the World Cup final. So it's it's a pretty remarkable period in in their history. But just a shame that some of their characters are, are utterly charmless. Martinez has won. I mean, Sergio Aguero he's, he's retired, but some of the some of the antics were just pretty pretty despicable. But unfortunately, um, not a not a great surprise as far as it's concerned. But nevertheless, football was the was the main winner because it was you know you, you couldn't help but get excited watching Mbappe doing what he was doing and and watching Messi doing what he was doing. And there were some other very good performances in that final. Well, our colleague Liam Corliss was slagging off Argentina to me as well, but I will be rather controversial and say, I'm a fan of Emilio Martinez and his antics at penalty shootouts. Ty, how are you? And what are, what's your opinion? You, you are, you are a Tim Cruel. I mean, you had Tim Cruel, didn't you, at Newcastle? Although I thought what Cruel did for, <laughs> for the Dutch against Costa Rica was, um, was he didn't cross the line, whereas I'd say Martinez did. It's the dark art, Samuel. It's the dark art. Ty, is, how are you? Yeah. I'm good. Thank you, Stephen. I'm good. I'm with you as well, to be honest. I mean, the only thing Martinez did that made me cringe yesterday was um, use the golden glove as uh, an imaginary... <laughs> Uh, you know what on the stage that was that utensil. was pretty childish and embarrassing yeah and imagine a utensil male utensil shall we say um I, I mean the penalties I, I've got no real issue with that it's just a bit of one-upmanship isn't it getting players heads and it, it clearly worked and I mean penalties are arguably overanalyzed these days but there were some stats doing the round about goalkeepers who are disruptors having a much better record than goalkeepers who were who passive and you know, Lloris just stood there and didn't really do anything. And, and Martinez was was obviously annoying and very unsportsmanlike, especially with what he did with, with Tuchemani. But you've got a 22-year-old there with not many caps taking a penalty in a World Cup final and Martinez simply psyched him out. So, I, yeah, I haven't got too big an issue. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we were just saying it was a non-event for 78 minutes. And then 50 minutes later, with the added time, it was the greatest World Cup final ever. It was um, a phenomenal game. And I thought it was just the the perfect aperitif for a week of... Um, a week of Carabao Cup fourth round action and Samuel clearly thinks the same judging by um, that, that, that excitable well, excitable reaction Samuel's that angry at our verdict on Martinez he's getting over his glass <laughs> yeah, oh, my, my glasses my paperweight nearly smashed into a, a, a glass there yeah I tell you what, he is brave gesturing with that golden glove as well in Qatar, doing something like know, Qatar. You, yeah. you're, you're very brave, or maybe maybe a bit stupid. Um, but we'll get into the United news there, Samuel. Obviously, we recorded a podcast on Friday, but Monday afternoon now. Um, you broke the story on Saturday night that United still have an interest in Frankie de Jong, and they are interested still in Jude Bellingham. So please could you expand on that really and tell a bit more about that story? 
Oh, it wasn't just me. There were a few of us who had that story simultaneously, yep. but I'll, I'll take your compliment, Stephen, obviously. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it is interesting having, after we sourced it, that it, in a way it wasn't a surprise that they've they've not closed the door on De Jong because he's he's a hell of a player. You look at the the age of United starter midfielders, Christian Eriksen and Casemiro, both of them turned 31 uh, a few days apart in February. There's not a great deal of quality and depth in midfield. I think we've always felt that they did, they would need a, a younger, more dynamic midfielder to, to come into that squad sooner rather than later. And De Jong is effectively still for sale at Barcelona. Uh, his, his situation hasn't improved greatly. You look at the brilliance of Pedri and, and Gabi, who... I think Pedri's only just recently turned twenty. Gavi's like seventeen or eighteen. It's it's extraordinary how how young they are, and yet how how old they seem, how how accomplished they are on the ball. And clearly, Barcelona are going to try and mould their their next great side around those two, the latest two maestros to come out of La Masia. And De Jong only signed three and a half years ago, is kind of fallen by the wayside. And when you've got an engaged uh, bidder. And United were prepared to pay 85 million euros for De Jong in, in the summer. Then it, it was in Barcelona's interest to get De Jong off the books, especially because of their their own financial issues, and they've not gone away. So while this is going on, and whilst Manchester United still have a vacancy in that position, it does make sense for them to still be interested in De Jong because he he could be a transformational transfer if he was to come in. I I I. You know, I said it many a time on, on podcasts in the summer that I, it felt strange. That the, the initial first link did feel strange. It did feel like a jolt um, to the point that it was almost unbelievable. But then you, know, you check things out quickly enough and hopefully you get confirmation and, and, and I was I was able to. But it did always seem quite fanciful that they would get that deal done. There were a hell of a lot of obstacles in the way. And least of all, Dion was publicly saying how much he wanted to stay at Barcelona. And when he joined Barcelona, it seemed like that was um, that was something he was in, he was very invested in for possibly the, the rest of his career. It's not panned out that way. Uh, Barcelona haven't treated him particularly well. There are people at United who sympathise with De Jong's situation in the summer. And when it comes down to it, when... When United were going, you know, holding out and holding out and holding out, really until that Brentford game, at which point I think there was a shift and they realised, or Ten Hag realised, I just need someone defensive-minded here. I need to shore things up because we've not got that player and look at what the hell's happening. Um, but they were emboldened to wait it out and wait it out because what Dion was telling Ten Hag privately was that he was receptive to join United, that he was prepared to join United Uh personal terms were not seen as a problem uh, by, by people at United as well. So if you've got personal terms agreed with a player, that itself is an indication that they are more than willing to join uh, to join you, irrespective of what they're saying publicly. And if De Jong does you know, say something in public that Barcelona are going to take exception to, that might impact his, you know, his, I mean, the, the, the issue in the sum was the, uh, the wage deferral. And you talk about loyalty bonuses and stipulations in contracts, what have you. It's in his interest to keep his powder dry and declare his allegiance to Barcelona when deep down he's probably looking at options next year, some that might be more enticing than, than Manchester United. So De Jong is still 
there, there could be a sequel in the works to it. Hopefully, if it is a sequel, it's it's one that um, is is pretty short. And of course, with with Jude Bellingham, he's a player that everyone wants. He would enhance any midfield in the world. You talk about the favourites to sign Bellingham. Real Madrid have already signed to. Um, quality young midfielders in Camavinga and Chiumeni. So they've got those those two ready to supplement him with as possibly their next great midfield trio after Modric, Casemiro and Cruz. Liverpool desperately need a midfield general. Their, their flirtation with Bellingham has been uh, very brazen to say the least. You, you know what Jordan Henderson and Trent Alexander-Arnold are, are trying to do and, and you don't blame them really. And with Manchester City, they've got uh, the perfect salesman to, to pitch the club to, to Bellingham in in his former teammate Erling Haaland. So the competition is extremely intense. There's a a quiet confidence, you you could say, with United that they think that they can make another compelling pitch to Bellingham, that he could be a player to make history at that club and and, and end their their title drought that's certain to tick past a decade at the very least. Whereas their argument is that Real Madrid, Liverpool and uh, Manchester City, they're clubs that have been winning things quite regularly in recent years and you're not necessarily going to be the main man there whereas if you go to United and you're you know you could be their new their new Cantona if you like if you're talking about a, a, a talisman coming in or a, a catalyst coming in and ending a championship drought and there have been relationships forged there somewhat in that Bellingham was given a tour of Carrington in March 2020 um, People at United said that they rolled out the red carpet for him. He, he met a hell of a lot of staff while he was there as well. It was a real big pitch. Ed Woodward was there. Matt Judge was there. Ed Woodward had said earlier in the season that he had nothing to do with recruitment, which was clearly nonsense. And, you know, he, he tried to take a lot of credit for the Ronaldo deal as well. So you, sometimes you have to take what, what people say with a with a shovel of salt. Um, but with, with Bellingham and De Jong, nobody... And I think it's very easy um, with, with a certain demographic on Twitter uh, that they can get the lines blurred. But nobody is saying that United are going to sign both those players. I think that's practically impossible. I think it's practically impossible for any club to sign both of those players. And you know, it wouldn't be a surprise if they, they don't get either of them. And there, there, there's another option, I suppose, next summer in, in Declan Rice, given his interest in John United in the past and what he said at the World Cup. Was, was tantamount to, to a transfer request at West Ham when he said that you only get one career. And he said he spoke about how he sees his teammates playing in the Champions League and challenging for trophies. He's not going to do that at West Ham. They're, they're 16th and, and their best season, sorry, their best team in, in decades last season still didn't finish above United's worst season in decades. If we talk about realistic signings, yeah. We talk about realistic signings, Ty, and obviously De Jong, although the Samoa's a circus and obviously they didn't eventually sign him, he seems more realistic, certainly. Um, with Bellingham, like, I want to marry to Dua Lipa, but it's just probably not going to happen. It's wishful thinking. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's Pro- Probably it, not going to happen. <laughs> Ty, I've still got an outside chance. Come on, don't break my heart. But do you know what I mean? Like, is is it United interested in Bellingham? Of course they are. As Samuel said, everyone wants him. He's almost the perfect number six at the moment, isn't he? Um, so if not one of them, who? Who could United sign in, in kind of that mould or that position? Yeah, I mean, he is he, he is the, the dream midfielder. He's he's one of the best midfielders in the world. And you say he's the perfect number six. He's the perfect number four and the perfect number eight as well, I think. And pushing to be the perfect number 10, that's the frightening thing that he, he does seem to have it all and, and can do the lot. And 
you know, whether it's realistic, something. I mean, he's got to end up somewhere, hasn't he? Um, you know, he's he's going to go somewhere. Real Madrid are the only European option, you would think. Maybe there's an attraction to going there, but you know, he, he's done that. He's done his time abroad at, at Dortmund, so he might want to go back to the Premier League. In which case, there's only going to be four teams who are possible, which are the teams in the Champions League. And if Liverpool miss out, that would take them out. If United miss out, it would take them out. If Chelsea miss out, it'll take them out. So, so yeah, it's it's unlikely, but you know, it's it's certainly a a possibility as it is for for City, really. Um, you know, De Jong would be De Jong would still be possible because, Bar- as much as he's forced his way back into the Barcelona team, you'd think they're still at some point going to want to sell him and and cash in on him. And then beyond that, I mean, they don't. Really, the, those two are assigning players because they are world class and would would improve the team. Beyond that, they don't really desperately need a midfielder. I don't think those two are players who would clearly improve the team. You look at the starting midfield this year of Eriksson, um, Casemiro, and Fernandez, and I mean that's pretty good, really. You'd maybe you can maybe add a little bit more depth, but Fred and McTominay are by no means sort of disastrous backups. Um, so, so I don't think there's necessarily a, a desperation to sign a midfielder next summer. I'm sure there'll be plenty of others on the market, but you'd think one of those two, if if they were looking to get one of those two next year, you'd think that would certainly, especially if they get top four, that would probably certainly be be achievable. Um, but I don't think it would necessarily be near the the very top of the shortlist, depending on what happens with the striker, of course, and, and signing a striker in January and what sort of deal they pull off there and, and whether they're still in the market in the summer for, for a striker as well. I've got a quiz question then before we go on to Wan-Bissaka because I'll ask you about West Ham's loan interest, Samuel, but this is for both of you. Um, before Wan-Bissaka's cameo at Liverpool earlier this year, earlier this season, sorry, shall I say, what was the last his last appearance at Old Trafford? What month, what game? And if either of you get this, I'll be incredibly impressed. Last appearance at Old Trafford. Old Trafford. At Old Trafford. And I'll give you a clue. There were no goals. There was no goals in the game. Well done, Samuel. That's that's generally impressive. No, no, Watford. Uh, Yep, 26th of February. Uh, February. He's he's hardly played at Old Trafford this season. I mean, he's hardly played at all, has he? Um, And Samuel, you've wrote the line, obviously, that West Ham are interested in him on loan. It kind of says a lot about him that there seems to be a lack of permanent interest in him at the moment, doesn't it? Oh yeah, uh, I think it's contracted to United until twenty twenty four with the, the plus one option. Nobody's going to be offering a fee in January for him. United are quite fortunate that West Ham, at right back, they've there's been a lot of um, instability there. I think that Ben Johnson started six games in the league. Uh, Vladimir Kufal, who was their main right back last season and, and probably the season before, he started seven league games. The last three games in the league, it's been uh, Tilo Kera, who's a, a centre-back by trade starting there. So clearly, David Moyes can't nail down uh, the right man for, for right-back. And Wambisaka is, I think he's a, a full-back who's aligned with, with Moyes' profile. Moyes is not an adventurous manager. I know he's done a, a very good job at West Ham and that West, West Ham supporters expect a certain... Um, enterprise and style of play but if, if you are getting results if you're finishing high on the table if you're uh, giving them European 
semi-finals, it's 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 acceptable. This season, it's it's not been acceptable. They're they're sixteenth in the league, as, as you told me at the start of the season. Your your mate who bet with you on West Ham finishing above United. I mean that that was the safest wager that you've ever made. I think it must have been Stephen. That West Ham were never going to kick on from last season, and sometimes they have these flirtations with the the Champions League, and you just know they're never ever going to finish in the top four either. So, Wambasaka. Them, their interest in Wambasaka does help United because also Wambasaka is not really properly settled in the north. He's, he has had issues there. Engaging London clubs is logical. He's, he's still very highly regarded at Crystal Palace. And you look at who Crystal Palace are playing at right back. It, Joel Ward is still getting a game there. Uh, Nathaniel Klein has been alternating with with Ward and Nathaniel Klein's 31. Of course, he was he was re-signed by Palace uh, six or seven years after they they sold him to to Liverpool. So that that helps United that you've got two London clubs there who could feasibly sign Wan-Bissaka on a loan arrangement. Uh, West Ham, of course, borrowed Lingard off United in, uh, when was it, January 2021 for, for a loan fee. It was quite a frugal loan fee. I think it was about one and a half million pounds. Lingard was, was the difference between West Ham qualifying for Europe that season as well. Then United had the misfortune of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's indecisiveness, which effectively cost them twenty-five million pounds. If 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 they just said yes, we will sell Jesse Lingard, which is what somebody should have done, then I don't doubt for one moment West Ham would have paid that fee. They ended up signing, I can't remember who it was. Was it was it the Croatian player uh, for, for twenty-five million pounds right at the end of the window? And clearly that money had been allocated for Lingard, but in the end they didn't have enough. Um, encouragement to to make that deal possible. So it's in United's interest to get Wambisaka out, so then he can possibly do well on loan at a lower level in the Premier League. Palace or West Ham, it's it's much for muchness. Either one would would suit United's agenda. And then if he does that well, you just sell him in the summer for ten million. You just cut your losses on him. And I I think they need a right back in January, irrespective of the situation. Of course, with with Dallow's injury at the World Cup. It's, it's yet to be confirmed, the, the severity of that, but I suppose it was encouraging that he was back early on Friday uh, for, for that to be assessed. But whatever the situation with Dallas' injury, you've got to get Wan-Bissaka out because you, you said it earlier, Stephen, he's, 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 he's not started at Old Trafford since February, which is a pretty extraordinary stat. Uh, he's had four minutes this season. His only start starts I should say under Ten Hag have been these friendlies in Spain where he's only played out of necessity because United have had about 14 players at the World Cup I just don't see a way back for him at United and I don't think United want uh, want him to have a way back in the, into the team either he's he's just a player that everyone it seems at the club has accepted is is not up to it and it's in everyone's interests that they move him on and Fortunately, it looks like there's at least one taker in January and if, if they engage another club or two there, there could be multiple clubs in for him. We've not got all day type, but what exactly has went wrong with Wan-Bissaka? Obviously signed in 2019 for £50 million and he was quite well regarded when he came to the club. Is it as simple as he's not developed going forward? Um, and, you know, in the modern day, you need a proactive fullback that roams forward and provides in the final third. And another question on that, Samuel's just said they think he thinks they need to sign a right back in January. Uh, they've obviously got Brandon Williams still at the club who can play on either side. Could you see him? Deputising for Dallow, or do you think they need to bring someone else in? 
because they've got Ethan Laird on loan at QPR as well. So they could use that option, couldn't they? They could recall him. They could, yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of what's gone wrong with Wambasaka, I, I don't think it would take all day. They signed the wrong character and the wrong profile of player for the, for the wrong fee, basically. Um, it it like was that. Disaster, disastrous <laughs> all right. They signed a right-back who, who never attacked. Yeah. They signed a right-back who never attacked when, when they're a front, they should be a front-foot attacking team. And he's, you know, his, his attacking game hasn't developed at all. It's, it's hard to believe he was ever a winger. He's obviously a good defensive fullback. Although he's by no means perfect, he's good one on one, but he has a tendency to to sort of nod off when the ball's on the on the other flank. I think a few times he's been caught out with with crosses from the other flank when he's kind of gone to sleep a little bit, and he's just not really he's not he's not fitted in at a club the size and the stature of Manchester United. He's not fitted into the dressing room. He's not fitted into the expectations of a club like this, and you know they just didn't do their their homework. It's it's one of the most disastrous transfers in, in recent memory, really. Considering it was the one that United used to trumpet how much their recruitment system had improved in 2019 and how their database had produced a list of 804 right-backs and, and Wambasaka was the top one. And we're signing players on character as well now. And, and he's failed on basically every metric. Um, it, it, you know, it was it was disastrous. He's just, he's just not... He's not good enough for a top six club. He might go back to Palace and West Ham and prove to be a very reliable defensive right back who can put the odd good cross in, which we have seen him do at United, to be fair. There's there's been moments where he's put decent crosses into the box and come up with a few assists, but it's just not it's not there often enough. And you look at clubs now and, and what they're doing with their fullbacks, especially at, at this level. You look at City and United using fullbacks inside, what Liverpool get Alexander Arnold to do. I mean, Wambasaka just—he couldn't slot in and play central midfield when the ball's on the other flank, for example, like Dallow does. He can't go and play as part of the front three like Alexander Arnold sometimes does when Liverpool have got the ball. You look at Rhys James, for example, at Chelsea. You know, he's he's nowhere near that level, is he? Um, so he was just—you know—he was he was never the right player, the right signing. They signed him because he was young and British, which in 2019 is is what they were obsessed with, unfortunately. Um, and it, that was that was clearly the the wrong move. So they do need um, another right back. Laird is an interesting one. His loan is going very well. I wouldn't see the need really to to cut that short to bring him back in as backup for for Dallow. And if Dallow stays fit, he might get three or four games. Uh, I think you're sort of stunting his own development there when when he's having a very good season. When last year turned into a bit of a difficult one for him, especially the second half of the season. So Brandon Williams is a, is a possibility, but I don't, I don't get the impression he's really United material either. Um, so, But they, they just need someone to compete with Dallow now. I think six months ago, you'd have been looking, saying they need a starting right back. I think Dallow's got that place nailed now. He's, he's been excellent this season. His improvement's been massive. He was better than Cancelo for Portugal in the World Cup. So, so they need some cover, which should be achievable in January, rather than trying to sign a, a starting right back for years to come. One by second, there's a new debut. No, 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 no. I suppose the other thing with, I suppose the other thing with Laird as well is that since this managerial change at QPR, he has kept his place. There's been, there's yeah. not been any change there at all. Sometimes new manager comes in that can harm you, but I don't think he'll have any issue with uh, Neil Critchley going in there. I think you keep all the championship players at the clubs. Hannibal, uh, Ahmed, and, and Laird personally. Uh, I know obviously Fernandez as well. Yeah. Yeah, they're all doing quite well. He's probably been the best, yeah. actually, I'd say. Um, 
until Ahmed's go, uh, goal spreads, making me look daft recently. Um, if we move on to some World Cup chat then, Samuel, briefly. Um, Duran played 113 minutes and bless him, he looked absolutely exhausted at the end of that when he came off. He just collapsed to the floor, didn't he, on his knees in Argentina's kind of free-free game. I think it was a final that had it all against France. Um, regarding the return, the return, pardon me, the return date for those players, when can we expect them to play for United again? Because obviously Burnley on Wednesday, three days after, that's obviously came too soon. Um, is it perhaps Wolves later on next week? The week after? For, for, for Martinez and, and Varane, I would imagine so. I mean, it, it's, it's surprising to be told today, as you said, we're speaking on the Monday, two days before, the Burnley game that United are on a, a day off today. They had quite a rigorous uh, training session on Sunday, uh, I was told. But for the World Cup uh, quarter finalists, that the, the nine players who were obviously eliminated at that stage, they'll probably have what one training session then um, going off that before that Burnley game. And you, you look at Ten Hag's selection strategy in the, the cups and sorry the League Cup and, and the Europa League. He's he's played very very strong teams. He's not given. Uh, many freebie appearances out at all or anything like that or integrated too many youngsters in or um, you know over promoted certain certain youngsters he, he he's he you know he wants to he wants to win as many competitions as possible so it probably would have been in his interest to to have a training session today but maybe there's some some method in it anyway we'll we'll have to wait and see so so the three from portugal three from england uh, the two uh, sorry two port Two Portuguese, three from England, three from Brazil, one from the Netherlands. They should all be at Carrington on Tuesday. Um, it remains to be seen if if Jane Sancho will be, given that he's been training individually. He wasn't at Carrington last week. I don't think there's any chance whatsoever of him coming into the uh, into the team or maybe even into the squad against Burnley. You're possibly looking at Forrest on the 27th for him coming back into the side with. With Martinez, Lissandra Martinez, it's, it's an interesting one because obviously, as, as we said, there's, there's a hell of a lot of emotion around Argentina winning their first World Cup since 86 and uh, the, the Maradona aspect of it, the Messi aspect of it. Um, you'd imagine that they'd want to do a, almost a tour of Argentina uh, with, with the trophy, but I don't know what the plan is there. I know they did an open top bus tour in, in Qatar, but... It's, it's pretty gaudy in comparison to you know, the sea of blue and white in, in Buenos Aires. Uh, you, you, you would, if you were an Argentina player, you would understandably want to go back to your homeland and savor those scenes because this this is once in a lifetime stuff potentially. Uh, so that, there's, I, I think the the challenge for United is far more mental than physical. Fortunately, they're losing finalists. Varane, he's he's a grown up. He's he's won the World Cup before which you would hope for United's sake and his sake makes it slightly easier. It's it's still going to be galling for him to have to have lost a, a World Cup final. Um, you could see it, as you said, when he when he went down, he was absolutely shattered. He, he overcame that ankle injury to get fit for the tournament. Then he had that bug in the week, so he was he was ill and he, he played it looked like he wasn't quite hundred percent fit, but he still made some some key interventions. And it's in United's interest to have Martinez and, and Varane back at the earliest point possible. But with with Harry Maguire, I think he has to start against Burnley because Ten Mengi fell out of the the game against Real Betis, and the only alternatives are, are, are Reece Bennett and and Dishon Bernard. So 
it's it's not ideal. And, and Burnley are doing extremely well. They they won again at the weekend. They're one 0 down against Middlesbrough. Ended up winning three one. I think uh, only lost two games all season. The way it's going, you. I think Ty and I are certainly expected to go back to Turf Moor next season for for a Premier League game because they've um, they've done very well up until this point. That's your old patch, isn't it, Ty? Burnley. It is indeed. Yes, yes. yes. Many happy memories of uh, of freezing freezing cold days <laughs> at Turf Moor in August. Even colder than Lee Sports Village. Turf Moor was it? I would say I would say it probably is, but it's Just a close on thing because yeah, Lee Sports Village does seem to be pretty pretty chilly as well. Yeah. Yeah. There tonight and on a December night, I'll give you a new verdict. I do feel very <laughs> lucky that this question has fell to the though, because I apologise if I'm wrong, Samuel, but I'm not sure you would entertain this question. I was going to ask about Ronaldo and Messi. Is it about is Rashford's it... contract? No, no, no. I was going to ask you about, obviously, United fans are a bit tired of it now, uh, talking about Ronaldo. You see them comments, but it is a relevant point after Sunday night, the Messi kind of Ronaldo debate. Copa America, World Cup final, seven Ballon d'Ors. Um, you have to be mad to still think Ronaldo's the better player or Piers Morgan. Do you, would you agree with that, Tyrone? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've I've always preferred um, Messi, to be honest. Um, I think he's just more more of a, an artist than than Ronaldo. You obviously cannot denigrate what Ronaldo has done and his record. It is absolutely incredible. His desire to make the best of himself is. His ruthless ability to score goals is, is absolutely amazing. But I've always just felt Messi is nicer to watch, a bit purer to watch, looks a bit more graceful um, and just more more magical, take your breath away moments than Ronaldo. And, you know, I, I wanted Argentina to win yesterday because Messi, not because it makes any difference to his legacy at all. The idea we were judging him on one 90-minute performance when he's 35, given all he's done. And, and whether that makes his legacy or not is is clearly com- completely rubbish. But he clearly deserves to win a World Cup as well. And he, he played well in the final, which was great to see. But, you know, regardless of how that went yesterday, it was always, you know, it, it's messy for me over Ronaldo, purely because of the the artistry. And, but, I mean, the great thing is that they are different players and you, you can like different aspects of of their games, I guess. And, and the whole, you know... I, I, Likewise, I don't think Messi winning the World Cup and Ronaldo not should really come into it because Argentina have won the World Cup two times previously. They're always there or thereabouts for the World Cup. Portugal aren't really. And yes, they've never really had a run with Ronaldo and, and I'm sure that'll be hugely disappointing to him. He's never really driven them there. I don't think he's even scored a knockout goal, has he? So that, that record will be disappointing. But I don't think you'd have looked at it at the start of Ronaldo's career and gone, you'd expect Portugal to win a World Cup. Whereas at the start of Messi, you'd probably said, you expect Argentina to. So I don't think that should necessarily come into it. And I don't, like I said, I don't think yesterday makes, had, had it gone the wrong way for Argentina yesterday, I don't think anyone will be saying, well, Messi's not, you know, he's, he's not, you know, he's the same player regardless of what happened yesterday. But yeah, in terms of that debate, for me, it's, it's got to be Messi. I'd rather watch Messi. You know, if I had to pick one to watch, I'd rather watch Messi than watch Ronaldo. Very sensible comments, Ty. I think everyone would agree. If we now move on to Marcus Rashford's contract <laughs> situation. <laughs> If we move on to the League Cup on Wednesday, I'll just ask you a few questions before we end. Um, Samuel, what do you think the team will look back? We've just kind of looked like we've just discussed the return dates of the players. Um, it was Garnacho, Martial, and Alanga that started in the front three in the friendlies in Spain. You'd feel they're pretty nailed on the start on Wednesday night, wouldn't you? You would. And Ericsson and McTominay probably as the midfielders. Yeah. Uh, Donny van der Beek by default. Uh, Again, 
I suppose with the back three, sorry, the back four, there, there, there's a case to put Malassia in, even though he's not he's, he's not played a game since the, the Fulham match, which was just over five weeks ago now, uh, completely unused at the World Cup. So they, they have to make some, some key assessments in terms of the, the players ready for it. As I said, Maguire has to come in just because of the the lack of, of defensive cover there and, and the situation with Martinez and, and Varane being unavailable as well. Lindelof's nailed on the starter, uh, we should forget to say as well. So they can they can field a, an established team, a, a senior side, a team that you would you'd think is is good enough to beat Burnley, but it doesn't it doesn't work out that way all the time. And I suspect company will be pretty motivated to to win that game as well um, as as he always is. That he was he was a he was a great player for Manchester City. He was, he was a world class player, and uh, he's he's not he's not used to losing games, and he's been able to incorporate that mentality into his his management at Burnley, who of course in the Premier League as, as brilliantly as job as Sean Dyche did, they would lose a fair few games each season because they were most of the time they were usually towards uh the, the finishing in the in the bottom half of the table they obviously had the odd good season where they, they qualified for europe but he's company's gone in there and and he's he has as i said he's you know he's he's almost introduced them to to a winning mentality and obviously it's it's happening at in the second tier but to have still overseen this transition and, and they are playing a very different uh, style of football as well. They are a lot more possession-based. I think they had some like 60% possession in their first game of the season at Huddersfield and it was a, it was a bit of a culture shock watching them. I think I watched the first half of it when they, they were very slick and they've had to cope with a couple of uh, good players leaving as well. Corne, of course, um, went to West Ham. Tarkovsky was a very good defender for them. Ben Mee was was excellent for them as well. Nick Pope was a very dependable keeper most of the time. But but company is is doing very well there. And you only have to look at, at Huddersfield, who were in the playoff final last season. They're now bottom of the championship. That's that's how cutthroat an environment it is. So you can't you can't go too easy on them. It's very easy to say, well, the second eleven should be able to do the job. But I, I think Ten Hag would still be tempted to start up some regular players, not all of them. I don't think he's ever going to do that. But you would look at Fernandez. You'd look at obviously Maguire has to come in. Uh, if if Dallo is fit, then why not? Because he's he started every game, all but one game this season. He only missed that through suspension. And the alternative is Wan Bissaka, who, as you said, has not started a, a game at Old Trafford since February. So. Uh, I, I still think it's advisable for United to take some of the World Cup players and put them into that, almost parachute them into that uh, eleven. And I suppose they've got the benefit of where it's an evening game on Wednesday. You could do a training session in the morning to to get some up to speed, work on routines if need be. But you know, when Ten Hag has shown confidence in certain squad players before this season, they've not. They've not necessarily repaid it. Um, Van der Beek's an obvious example of that during his his three game starting run. We have three games remaining then, Ty, of 2022. Obviously, Burnley in the League Cup, Nottingham Forest at home, and Wolves away. So, what are you expecting from those three games? And if you had to summarise this year, calendar year of 2022, so the last six months of last season, the first six months of this season, how would you assess that? Because it started off very miserably, didn't it, at the start of this year? But it feels like we're ending on a positive note with Ten Hag and the progress he's making. Yeah, definitely. Um, the first thing that came to mind then was um, 
Was it Antonio Conte that did the famous line of sometimes maybe good, sometimes maybe... <laughs> It's Gattuso, Gattuso, wasn't it? I'm pretty sure it was Gattuso. It was Gattuso, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm getting my, my mad Italian, Italian manager. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was Gattuso, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the first thing that, that sprung to my head. And I mean, it's impossible to sum up 2022, really, isn't it? A, a shambles for six months, maybe longer than that. And then obviously recovered and ending it in a, in a pretty good place. Um, in terms of what to expect, I think the two league games, you'd be, you'd be hoping for six points, really. It's beneficial that they don't play till the night of the 27th in terms of getting players back. Might be tight for Martinez and Varane then, but even without that, with those fixtures, you'd be happy enough going into those fixtures with Maguire and Lindelof starting, I think. Um, Wednesday, it feels to me like they're a little bit vulnerable on on Wednesday, partly because of the team they're going to have to pick. It will be fascinating to see if Ten Hag goes with any of those World Cup players. I mean, you're talking... It's going to be 10, 10, 10 days for the English players, 11 for the Portuguese and the Brazilians since they were knocked out. So you're talking 11 and 12 days since they last trained, maybe one training session before that. It's, you know, it's, it's, there's a degree of risk involved, but if you don't play them, then it's a, it is very much a, strecken, a second string team. And you're playing a team that has had, that A is flying and B has had two competitive games in the last week in which they've scored six and conceded one. So, it, there's, there's a lot, I think, pointing towards Burnley coming to Old Trafford and thinking on Wednesday we've we've got a real a real shout here. They're a they're confident and b they're they're fully up to speed, fully match fit. Even those United players who who are going to play who didn't go to the World Cup aren't going to be match fit because they've played three friendlies essentially, one of which was behind closed doors. Um, so it does it feels like it this it feels like they're a little bit vulnerable in that game. There's there's a lot to lose for them, I think, on on Wednesday in terms of momentum, but also a, a real shot at winning a trophy. And the fixture list has, has not been kind in, in that regard. Um, so it's a, a difficult one to call that. But in terms of the league fixtures, I think it should be six points from six. And if they do that, they might well be in the top four by by New Year, which you know I think would be fantastic turnaround considering where they were in August. It would feel like a, a massive opportunity miss, wouldn't it, if they went out on Wednesday night? As the mm, League Cup's yeah. very winnable this year. Very- yeah, it would. Yeah. Just end there then, gents. Thanks as usual for your time. Thank you, Samuel. Thank you, Stephen. And thanks as usual, Tyrone. Cheers. Thanks, Stephen. And just for the listeners, before we hop off for the second consecutive podcast, if you'd like to check out our YouTube channel, we're now across there. So if you subscribe, comment, let us know you're watching. And we also have an exclusive with Clive Tilsley on the Mirrors YouTube. What a treat. And I've been reliably informed he is a United fan, a Boreheard United fan. So get across there um, and, and see what he's saying. It was a travesty that he was sent home early from the World Cup. Uh, some dodgy commentating decisions from ITV, I believe. Anyways, that's us for today. So thank you very much as usual. Take care.